old enough. I was a student at Max Bruner Junior, Junior High School in Fort Walton Beach at the time. Remember friends of my friends and I counting the days following the seizure of American citizens in Tehran, Iran, when the revolution happened there and the Ayatollahs took power and for 444 days they were held captive. Inauguration day, January 1981, they were released. A couple weeks later, the New York Times ran a story, and they wrote this, the former hostages groped to describe the elation of fresh liberation. The feeling of freedom, said Jerry Miley, a Foreign Service Communications Officer, that's it, freedom. You don't know what that is till you've come out and you're free. It changes your insides and you're alive again. In that same New York Times story, they also described the captivity as, as after having, having interviewed those hostages. They write this, all were mentally or physically maltreated and many have come home with bitter feelings for their Iranian captors. Some tell of beatings, mock executions, and cruel episodes of Russian roulette. A few describe the agonies of months of solitary confinement in dark, dank, windowless dungeons and dark closets. Most relate ordeals of deprivation in which conversation, fresh air, exercise, news, mail, and showers were forbidden. There are also accounts of the kinds of resourcefulness well known to prisoners, use of toilet paper and wastebaskets as secret communication links, Nicknames and words of contempt for captors and codes and languages the Iranians did not understand. A Marine's morale-boosting cartoon drawings. Arm wrestling matches between one hostage and a guard. And hours spent teaching English and other subjects to captors. Most, however, recount a time of boredom, loneliness, and doubt, of bad food, filthy living conditions, and numbing routine relieved only by books, playing cards, solitary thoughts, and occasional conversations with or outbursts of defiance against their captors. That, that experience of captivity illustrates a, a much, much more pervasive and deep spiritual cap captivity, even enslavement. That every single human being experiences. And that joyous account of the release hints at the infinitely more glorious reality of being rescued from that spiritual slavery. Our, our passage this morning, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, speak of a glorious transfer from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So let's dig in. We're going to start by, by looking at the domain of darkness and at the kingdom and understand those two things and then look at what God has done in this glorious transfer. So first of all, we all experience the domain of darkness. Verse 13 uses that phrase, the domain of darkness. The word translated domain can also be translated authority or dominion. So this domain of darkness includes the idea that all who are in this domain are under its authority. 
its dominion and slaves to the darkness. And every person since Adam fell begins existence in this domain of the darkness. Christ is the only exception in the sense that he didn't have any of the darkness inside himself, whereas we do. But his incarnation is that he came and became one of us, still fully God, but he took on humanity and lived in this darkness and experienced all the darkness around him that we experience around us. A survey of the scriptures that speak of darkness shows us a picture of what this domain of darkness is and what characterizes it. Luke 1 verse 79 says, speaks of those who sit in darkness in the shadow of of death. One of the permeating marks of the darkness is death. One of the authorities in the darkness is death. The domain of darkness is also marked by sin, lawlessness, evil, wickedness. Proverbs 20, I'm sorry, 2, 13 and 14 describe those who walk in the way of darkness as departing from uprightness and delighting in evil. John 3.19 says, Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 2 Corinthians 6.14 speaks of darkness as lawlessness. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, the Apostle Paul is he's recounting Christ saving him and calling him on that road to Damascus, and he's quoting words of Christ to him. When he says that Jesus is sending Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Well, we recognize a lot of wording there, don't we, from the passage Paul read a few moments ago, where this, this commission... Jesus gave Paul, he's still fulfilling it. He's still preaching it. He's still proclaiming it, even in this letter that we're reading this morning. And we'll come back to that. But for now, note that the darkness is connected with sin and also with the dominion of Satan. So the power and rule of Satan also marks the domain of darkness. And with him, the demons. Ephesians 6.12 describes the world forces of this darkness. And this dominion of darkness goes all the way back to Adam's fall into sin. Romans 5 speaks of this. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. Sin reigned in death. The death spoken of here in Romans 5 and, and back in Genesis 2 and 3 has at least three aspects. We are born, in fact, we're conceived spiritually dead. The moment Adam ate of that fruit, he died spiritually. There was a separation now between him and God. True of he and Eve, true of every one of their descendants. We start out spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Children of wrath. That's the darkness. We have the darkness in us. Sinners, spiritually dead, under wrath. Second aspect of this death 
is we're born physically dying. Psalm 139.16, God knows the days we have. We have limited days because we start out heading to our physical death. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once after this, the judgment. And then third aspect of this death, we are born under the wrath of God that calls for eternal death. If we die still under his wrath, not delivered, then we will go and spend eternity separated from God, suffering wrath forever and ever and ever. Because our sin is against a holy, righteous God, and it's worthy of that punishment. It's the domain of darkness. Under death's reign is an awful place to be. Adam, as as the head of our race, he represented us. When he sinned, we sinned with him. We inherited his guilt and we ourselves sin. Some of, some of us will object, wait, 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 wait. It's not right that his sin means I'm guilty. The problem is I sin too. The problem is if, I, if each of us in turn had to, had to pass that test that he had in the garden, will I obey God or not? We would have failed it too. But the beauty of being represented, this is what Romans 5 speaks of, with Adam as the head of our race, Side note, one race. There's one human race. It's a whole other sermon, but we're not different races. We're one race. And we're all in this sin, and we're represented by him. The beauty is we can be represented by Christ. So that everyone who repents and believes on Christ, he's their head to give righteousness. And we'll get to that in a minute in our passage and deliverance from this horrific place in the domain of darkness. Augustine spoke of how Adam, before the fall, was able to sin. Once he fell, Adam and all his descendants, every one of us, with the exception of Christ, who was sinless as the God-man, all of us have become not able not to sin. So Adam went from able to sin, but once he sinned, he became not able not to sin. And that's true of you and me without Christ. We'll say, well, I don't do every sin that I could think of. No, by the grace of God, he restrains us. We don't go as fully as we could. But as we'll read in a minute in Romans 3, we are not able not to sin. Your sin may vary from some from my sin, mine from yours, but we're all sin. We can't help it apart from Christ. It's part of the domain of darkness, being slaves to our own sin as it's described in Romans chapter 6. And Romans 3 describes how thoroughly sinful we are. And we need to be reminded of that. We live in a time and a society that thinks man is basically good. We don't really have that big of an issue or of a problem. We need to hear Romans 3, that we're totally depraved, guilty sinners. Because that's the reality. It would be nice if we weren't, but to pretend we aren't when we are is no help. There's no, there's no ultimate good in that. It's a deception. 
It's, it's a lie of the, of the enemy to keep us in that condition. Now, this does not mean we're as evil as we could be. God restrains, but we're, we're corrupted through and through. So Romans 3, 10 and 11 tells us that our character is sinful. There's none righteous, it says, not even one. None who understands. In fact, in, in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, it says that our understanding is darkened and we have spiritual ignorance. And that that ignorance is our fault because of our hardened hearts. And thus, we're not sinful because we're ignorant of God. Rather, we're ignorant because we sin and refuse to believe. Similarly, Romans, similarly, Romans 1, 18 to 21 tells us our hearts are darkened and we suppress the truth. Isaiah 5.20 prophesies about this. One, one form it takes to suppress the truth is to just say the opposite. Isaiah prophesies, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Boy, in the news recently, there's just a blatant way this is happening. Where you have entire legislatures and media celebrating the killing of babies in the womb to the point of right at the point of birth and in some cases after the birth, infanticide, the killing of a live baby out of the womb, celebrating it, calling it good. And any of us who would stand up and for the sanctity of human life, every human life is created in the image of God and is sacred as such, and we don't have the right to take it. We're called evil, anti-women, anti-choice, anti-freedom, Nazi-like. It's a complete reversal of reality fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah, calling good evil and evil good. But, but those of us who understand the, the image of God in every human being and the sanctity of every life and who would decry that Realize that in our own hearts, we do the same thing ourselves. Our sinfulness wants to justify itself. And so we find ways to say, no, for me, it's, this is good. For me, this is the reason it's okay. And we flip things around as well. Continuing in Romans 3, our sinful character is also marked by not seeking God. There's none who seeks for God, it says. You know, the popular view of religions, world religions and philosophies, are that they're different forms of people seeking God. And in fact, it's popular to think as long as you're sincere in whichever form you're pursuing, you're going to get there. You're going to be okay with God. But that's not the truth. Every religion, every philosophy is people avoiding God by coming up with their own God or their own way or their own philosophy. Christianity, true biblical Christianity is unique because it's not about us trying to get to God like all others are. It's about God coming to us, about God becoming man. God the Son became a man to come and live the perfect life we fail to and to go to the cross and take our place and satisfy God's wrath for us that he could save us. It's unique to say that God became man. It's unique that God comes to us. It's unique that God does the work and we're receiving the gift by his grace. 
We don't seek God in our sinfulness. He has to seek us or we'll never get there. Not only is our character sinful, verse 12 tells us our behavior is sinful as well. We do not do good. No exceptions, not even one. We're not good people. Our behavior is sinful, every one of us. Verses 13 and 14 of Romans 3, our talk is sinful. Describes our throat as an open grave, like a, a grave open exposing a decaying corpse is us exposing our heart with what we speak. Romans 3, 15 to 17 says our lifestyle is sinful, that we are murderous at heart. Right after Adam sinned, their firstborn, Cain, murdered his brother Abel. In short order, there's been murdering ever since. And we can think through history of, of Genghis Khan destroying a third of the earth's population and Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and even today in many ways Xi Jinping and Ho Chi Minh and Castro and this week Maduro in Venezuela and there's just this murderous bent and when people get enough power that bent can sometimes come out. But it's in all of us. Thank God he restrains us. We don't all act on that physically but in James, it describes how we can speak it. We can speak and violate the sanctity of life of another by saying evil, ill things about them. Christ spoke of how hatred in our heart violates that sanctity of that fellow human being. Thank God we don't actually murder them, but we have that same sinful heart. And we're destructive at heart, it says, and we have no peace because we don't know its path. In Romans 3.18, our motive is sinful. We sin because we do not fear God. This evidence accumulates here in Romans 3 that we are depraved sinners in character, behavior, talk, lifestyle, motive. And we all begin here in the domain of darkness with no hope in ourselves. So what does it look like? It's war, it's murder, it's violence, it's hatred, it's racism, it's bigotry. It's natural disasters and tragedies. It's disease, cancer, and death. It's hardships and difficulties and frustrations. It's the sins of others impacting us, hurtfulness and ostracism and broken relationships. It's our own sin and our own inability to overcome our sin and the consequences that it brings. My, my goal in this point is simple, that you would affirm or reaffirm or come to believe that you're born a sinner, corrupted by sin in the entirety of your being, that you face and are under the wrath of God for that sin, and apart from Jesus, salvation in Jesus Christ, you will stay in that condition forever. And secondly, I want you to reaffirm or come to believe that every other human being is in that same depraved condition and their only hope, like your only hope, is Jesus Christ. And that in that situation with our sin, we're in the midst of all the others with their sin under the control of Satan and the world system in sin and fallenness and a fallen nature that brings, we're in a dark, dark domain. We start there, and if we're outside of Christ, we remain there. Secondly, the kingdom of God's beloved Son blesses those in it beyond measure. Complete contrast 
in every way to the domain of darkness. In contrast to that domain is the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And as we survey the scriptures on the kingdom, we find that the kingdom is an, an, an overarching theme of the Bible. This is, a, this is something that's all the way through. Alistair Begg quotes Graham Goldsworthy defining the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place, <clears throat> excuse me, under God's rule and God's blessing. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. It's pretty good. Thomas Schreiner writes that the kingdom of God has a threefold dimension, focusing on God as king, human beings as the subject of the king, and the universe as the place where the kingship is worked out. And he, goes, and he also writes how, uh, because there, there are God's covenants through the scriptures, and he says that's the means he uses in establishing that rule as king. So let's start as creator. Creator, the Lord, is sovereign king over all. And in Genesis 1, God, Elohim, is plural. And in verses 26 to 28, God says, let us make man in our image. It refers to the Father as the creator, to the Holy Spirit as the creator, verse 2 of Genesis 1, and to, to the Son. God the Son is the creator, and John 1 tells us, John 1, 1 through 3. So there's one God, one in essence, three in persons. And God gave man, Adam with Eve, essentially a sub-kingship over this creation. There would be sub-regions. They were to rule and to multiply and to fill the earth. But Adam sinned and he failed. And in Genesis 3, after that fall, God, he reaffirms, be fruitful and multiply. He reaffirms they should seek to have some of that dominion, but now they're going to be fighting there going to be all kinds of obstacles and difficulties, the domain of darkness. And in the midst of that, in verse 15 of Genesis 3, he promised that there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. First promise of the Christ, of God the Son coming, of this king for whom they would await. In Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, we see God choosing Abram, who becomes Abraham, and making a covenant with him and promising him a land and, and a seed, including many offspring, including kings coming from him, and a blessing on him and through him blessing all the peoples of the earth. In Exodus, we find Abraham's descendants had become many. Part of the, part of the promise was, was happening. The problem is they were in another land, Egypt, and they were in slavery there. They were experiencing darkness, and they were crying out. And the Lord answered their cries, and he comes and he delivers. He rescues them with mighty acts of power. But then they're unfaithful to him. And that leads to a whole generation dying, wandering in the wilderness. He gets them in the land under Joshua, and again, they're unfaithful. But he's, faith, he's always faithful, and he delivers them. There's this cycle, this downward spiraling cycle through judges of he delivers them, and then they become unfaithful, and he delivers them, and they needed a king. So he gave them a king, Saul first, but then David, the man after God's own heart. And he made a covenant with David, and, and in that covenant he promised there would be a son of David on the throne forever. But after David died, under his son and then his grandson, the kingdom split. There was unfaithfulness. Eventually it kept building up. God kept delivering, but 
Prophets kept calling them back, but they refused. They were sent into exile, as God promised. If they were unfaithful, they would be sent into exile. Later they return, and they're back in the land, but they're impoverished. They're under foreign control. They're waiting. They're waiting for this one the prophet spoke of that goes all the way way back to God, to, to Adam and Eve of the seed, this Messiah, the son of David, the seed of the woman, the king. As we come to the New Testament, John the Baptist prepared the way, and Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. Later, before his crucifixion to Pilate, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. Romans 14, 17 describes the kingdom as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 all proclaim the unrighteous cannot enter the kingdom. Only the righteous can enter. Now that's good. It's good because the kingdom will be pure. It won't have sin in it. But it's bad news for us. Because we sin. And we'll come back to what God's done about that. Colossians 1.12 makes clear that light marks the kingdom. William Hendrickson notes that in the Bible, light represents holiness, truth, love, glory, peace, prosperity, liberty, joy. Also, God says that he is light, 1 John. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This kingdom is also one of life. Romans 5.17 says that in contrast to death's reign, believers will reign in life through Jesus Christ. Just a few more aspects of this kingdom. 2 Timothy 2.8, Christ is the descendant of David who will rule. Revelation 11.15, he will reign forever. Ephesians 1.20-23, Christ is above all other powers and authorities and he is the head of the church. Hebrews 1.8, Jesus is God and king and his rule is righteous. James 2.5, in the kingdom the citizens have faith and love God. Hebrews 12.28, the kingdom cannot be shaken. 2 Peter 1.11, the kingdom is eternal and its entrance is supplied by God. So, in in this kingdom of God's beloved Son, there's no more dominion of Satan and demons. There's the King, Jesus Christ. There's no more sin. There's righteousness and holiness. There's no more death. There's life. No more darkness. There's light. No more enmity. There's peace. No more hatred and bigotry. There's love. No more suffering, there's healing, and every tear will be dried. No more wrath, curse of God, instead the blessing and favor of God. All God's will, His plans, His promises are filled in Christ the King and His kingdom. And that begins immediately, immediately upon a person putting saving faith in Jesus Christ. It begins. The experience of the kingdom of the beloved son begins for that person. It's not complete yet. It's also the future fulfillment. It's an already not yet kingdom when we first come to Christ. But it's all for certain. A couple of examples. The the power of sin is immediately broken. I mentioned Augustine earlier how, how Adam went from able to sin to not able not to sin and we with him. When we come to faith in Christ, immediately we're able not to sin. The power's broken, but there's still sin present. That's going to come in glory and it'll be fully completed. The, the, the ending of all sin in God's presence in his kingdom. And when that happens, when we're in glory, 
we will not be able to sin. That's glorious. If, 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 if we know our heart and we know our sin and we know the difficulty to not sin, even with all the, the power of God available to us in His Spirit, it's glorious to think about in glory, not able to sin anymore. Another example. Spiritual life is granted so that we repent and believe, but we're still dying physically. But in glory, we won't experience the eternal death. We have eternal life with the Lord. Immediately, spiritual death stopped. We, we now have a relationship with God the moment we believe. In fact, right before we believed, it, it all happened. He gave us life so that we could believe. But also, physical death will be reversed for us in glory. We will, we will get a resurrection body one day. And physical death has been changed for us. It just becomes an entrance into glory. And so it is, this is a glorious kingdom. And notice we, as we look at the kingdom that Paul spoke of the domain of darkness, not the kingdom of darkness. And, and that reflects an important biblical truth that I think can also get lost in, in the popular ideas of our day. It's popular in our day to, to talk about the yin-yang and, and use the Tao, you know, the Taoist symbol of you know, the little black and white whatever you call those things. That's a false idea. Or popular in the Star Wars series of the force and the dark side of the force. And there's some kind of equality there and there's this tension. It's got to be this balance that has to be maintained. That's nonsense biblically. There's no truth to that whatsoever. This is not a cosmic fight of equal good and equal bad, you know, hammering it out and who's going to win. The kingdom is God's. God and God alone is the almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent one. God and God alone is the all-knowing, omniscient one. God and God alone is the omnipresent, everywhere present one. None of that is true of Satan. None of that is true of this world system. That's not true of death. God is the sovereign Lord of all. And he will establish his kingdom. And as powerful as the darkness is for us, and it is for us, compared to our strength, it is unbelievably great. The power of Satan and his demons and the world system and death and our own sin. But compared to the Lord Jesus Christ, to, who is God Almighty, it's nothing. His power is infinitely greater, and he will win all. He has the victory, and he will finish it all out for his people who are in his kingdom. Thirdly, now that we've looked at the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved son, let's look at what he has done. God rescues believers from the darkness to his kingdom by redemption in Christ. Let's read our verses again here in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, we know from verse 12, is God the Father. He's the subject. The action he takes is rescued. That's the verb. Us is the object of that verb. 
us as the believers, back from the beginning of the chapter, with Jews and Gentiles, we're the, we're the beneficiaries of God's rescuing. And this idea of rescue alludes back to what we mentioned earlier, God rescuing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh and Egypt at the time were the superpower of the world. Strong army. They had chariots. Not many had chariots in those days. The Israelites were slaves in that land. In themselves, they they did not have a way to free themselves, to overcome this. But God answered their calls, their cries. As we said earlier, with mighty power, he brought them out and with blood. The tenth plague was the death of the eldest son in each household. And God commanded his people, the Israelites, to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their home. As an act of faith, trusting the Lord that he would pass over their home in his judgment and their eldest would live. And that's exactly what happened there in Exodus 12. And that was a picture pointing to what Christ would do for his people. When John the Baptist introduced Christ, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. I think this was part of that picture. In John 19.36, the, the Apostle John writes, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. He had to be that unblemished lamb, referring back to the Passover. And Paul states it clearly in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So with power and a substitutionary blood sacrifice pointing to Christ, God rescued Israel from the darkness of slavery in Egypt. In Colossians 1.13, God rescues believers from the domain of darkness, from Satan, demons, the world system, sin, death, and transferred us believers to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That word transferred is used in Acts 13 to speak of God's removing Saul from being king. It was used in the ancient world to speak of, of taking a conquered people and displacing them to another location, transferring them. For believers, it's not a change of, of physical geography, of physical location, although it could lead to that. Once he transfers, once we're in his kingdom and we're following Christ as our king, we may stop going to some places we used to go to. And we may start going places we were not going to before because of his kingship. But, but the transfer is not speaking of that kind of a physical change. Speaking of a change inside, an instantaneous change where God rescues us out of darkness and its authority and puts us under Christ, the King, and His authority. And that changes everything forever in that instant. Some people say, I can't name that instant. I can't, I can't go to the calendar and name the instant. But there was an instant. And we can see the difference that instant made by the grace of God in our lives. From the authority of the darkness, of our sin, of of the world around us, of the demonic forces of Satan, of evil and wickedness and horror and justice and hurt and confusion. 
Are there not times in this life where all of the darkness gets overwhelming? Even when we're believers, there can be times we cry out to God, why? What, what, why are you allowing that to happen? It can be overwhelming, but he delivers us out of it. And one day it will be completed when Christ comes back. And we won't have those questions anymore. And into the authority, the kingdom, his beloved son, with all the good and the truth and the comfort and the peace and the strength and the love and the beauty and the hope that comes with Christ. That phrase, beloved son, is literally the son of his love. It describes uh, in describing Christ, it's pointing to how the Father and the Son have an eternal love relationship. It's, it's pointing to that love between the persons of the Godhead. John 17, for instance, speaks of that as Christ is praying. But also there in John 17, it, it points to God the Son being the person of the Trinity who reveals God's love for his people to us and, and how he brings us in to that love by his grace. In the Son, verse 14 says, we have redemption. This connects to the Passover lamb image we just mentioned. It points to how God can rescue sinners without violating his holiness and his justice. The word speaks of being redeemed, freed from slavery by the payment of a ransom. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, that he came to give his life a ransom for many. William Hendrickson writes, just as according to Israel's ancient law, the forfeited life could be ransomed, Exodus 21.30, so our life forfeited through sin was ransomed by the shedding of Christ's blood. In Ephesians 1.7, a parallel passage here to Colossians, it says, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And note the next chapter in Ephesians describes how prior to redemption we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Children of God's wrath. So Christ the Son of God's love is the Redeemer. He's the one who, who pays the price to redeem us. Who are the redeemed? Colossians 1.14 says we, referring to believers. Or from earlier in the chapter there in Colossians. And what was redemption's price? It doesn't specify it here in Colossians, but the, the parallel verse we just read from Ephesians does through his blood. And it's implied in the word redemption. The paying of the price. The price was that blood. So we were captive to our sin and to Satan. And so this, this idea of a paying of a ransom, it's not, you can't press that too far. Some people have tried to press that too far and say, oh, so... So Jesus paid Satan a ransom to buy us. No. Satan doesn't have the standing before God to demand such a payment. Satan wasn't, isn't the one offended by our sin. God's the one offended by our sin. And the debt created by our sin that has to be paid has to be paid to God. And so Christ paid that price, that ransom price, in his blood, suffering God's wrath, paid it to the Father, and the Father accepted it. 
Romans 3 describes this redemption. And in Romans 3, 21 to 26, it uses the word propitiation. It's a big word we don't use, but it means a satisfaction of wrath. So there in, in Romans 3, Pick up at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, he's writing of believers, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, verse 25, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That propitiation, that satisfaction of wrath, was paid by Christ in shedding his blood. We, because our sin has offended God and God's infinite in holiness, that's why, that's why the Bible speaks of hell. That's why it speaks of eternal wrath. That's why it would take us forever and never satisfy the payment. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 where a servant owes the king so much. And if you do the math of a daily wage and how much he owed and the figures of the time, it would take hundreds of thousands of years of work and the point was, he could never repay it. That's our debt of sin to God. And he's picturing that in that parable. God forgave him. Um, and so God paid that. I mean, the king in the story paid that. Because he had given it out, and he's not getting it back. He paid it and forgave. Well, in this situation, the way to pay it is Christ suffer in the place of sinners that have God, God's paying it himself in God the Son. And that's what he accomplished as our substitute on the cross. He fully paid the ransom price. As a result, verse 14 goes on, in him we have re the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is so closely and essentially connected to, to redemption that Paul writes it this way. It's, it's in to review our English grammar, it's an apposition. So in this sentence, uh, Riverbend Community Church's teaching pastor, comma, Scott Menez, comma, is preaching expositionally through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. In that sentence, Scott Menez is an apposition to the teaching pastor because there's such a close relationship. He's, it's not everything identical about those two titles of his person, well, in here, there's a reality going on, and forgiveness is a result of redemption, but it's so close that he describes it that way. It's essential. They go together. Forgiveness um, is something that we absolutely need because of our sin. We are to blame for our sin. It can't be excused away psychologically. It can't be excused away because of how we were brought up. It can't be excused away because of things we've gone through or circumstances when we sin, we answer to God for that sin. We're responsible, and the only solutions are pay this for the sin ourselves forever in hell or be forgiven our sins through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Well, in ancient Israel, and God filled the Old Testament with pictures pointing to Christ, they had the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would, would select two unblemished goats one would be sacrificed and the blood sprinkled on the altar. One, he'd put his hands on the head of that goat and symbolically put all the sins of the Israelites for that year on the head of that goat. 
And then the goat would be taken out into the wilderness. So far, it could never return. Of course, that didn't actually take their sins away, but it pointed to what Christ would one day do that would take the sins of all believers away. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19, he casts sins into the depths of the sea. Christ's redemption forgiveness of a believer's sin is complete. The moment we believe, we're just before God. We're initially sanctified. Our relationship with God is perfect because it's in Christ. Because he's accomplished it. He's paid the price and he's granted forgiveness. Now in our daily life, before glory, we still wrestle with our sin nature and so day by day, we, we still need a, a forgiveness. It's forgiveness of restoring that relationship. But in terms of our standing with God, it's been set when we enter his kingdom through Christ's redemption. Well, let's move on and wrap up with applications. Setting verses 13 and 14 in their immediate context can help us apply this amazing truth that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Colossians 1, verses 9 through verse 20 are one long sentence in, in Greek. And Paul had a habit of that. Ephesians 1 has a long sentence as well in verses 3 to 14. There's these, he likes these long sentences. I think part of it is he gets caught up. This sentence is a prayer. He starts praying and he gets caught up in it and, and just can't pause to stop the sentence. Um, prior to this prayer, Paul gives thanks to God in verses 3 through 8. Specifically, he's giving thanks that the gospel was constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And in doing so, it was doing so in all the world. So all these churches were starting, people coming to faith. And doing so in you also, there at Colossae, those people had come to faith and they were growing and more were coming to faith. Out of this gratitude, Paul begins to pray and his request is this, that believers be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's his prayer. Believers be filled with the knowledge of God's will. John Woodhouse points out that in Paul's prayer here, God's will is God's great and gracious purpose for his whole creation. It's not his will in the sense although it, it breaks down to this eventually, where should I go to college? Who should I marry? Those things that we, you know, we tend to think of, what's God's will for me? It starts with his big picture, what his plans and purposes are. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 speak of his will being, speak of his will being the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens, in the heavens, and things on earth. The gospel is now fulfilling, Genesis 1, 28, filling the earth with redeemed people, under Christ, the second Adam's rule, and fulfilling the promise to bless all nations through Abraham and the promise of the Davidic king and the promise of the seed who would save and, and so on. This knowledge of, of this gospel and of God's kingdom and redemption, and it's, this isn't knowledge for some elite theological ivory tower group. Paul's praying this is knowledge for every single believer that everyone will grow in this knowledge and of God's will and purposes. And God uses study as a means. 
And the key in our study is Christ. There in Colossians, just a a few verses after this passage, chapter 2, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The way we can know the truth is, is through Christ and His Word. In fact, I believe that verse indicates not just the way we can know truth about God and Scripture and spiritual things, it's all truth. Truth about His creation and science, truth about history, truth about life, truth about relationships, all of it. It's in Christ are stored all knowledge. And Colossians 1, 13 and 14 are a beautiful summary of much of this knowledge of God's will, His purpose for His kingdom, His gospel. So, let's make a few applications. For believers in Christ, in light of all this and following the context, we should study and meditate on these truths of God's rescue of believers, transfer to His kingdom, redemption, and forgiveness. And study them not only in these verses... Sorry, the breeze is trying to catch my papers. Not only in these verses, but all through the Scriptures. This, this purpose of God is all through the Scriptures. This is one statement of it. Study it all the way through the Word of God. Take time. Make time in the Word of God to do that. In the words of Pastor Jerry Boyles a few weeks ago, spend time in chapters 1, 2, 3 of Ephesians. Or in Colossians now, but it's the same point. It's the same idea. Know these truths. Know God in His truth. And then he'll, he'll bear the fruit in us to live out the commands that follow in the other chapters. Which leads us to the second application. As a result, walk worthy of the Lord. Paul states this as you continue reading, verse, starting at verse 9 uh, into verse 10 here. As we, as we go along, we're to walk worthy. And he gets specific. There's four phrases in the Greek that describe living life worthy of the Lord. Bearing fruit in good works. Now notice it's bearing fruit, not root. We're not doing good works to plant our own roots. The root is Christ and His redemption. He's so beautifully expressed to us in these verses. But if we've been transferred over, for now under the kingship of Jesus, there's going to, there's going to be fruit coming out in our lives, and we should bear it out. One, one example that I think fits for our passage because it speaks of our forgiveness. As we've been forgiven, we should forgive one another. And I think it's a particularly poignant application because we struggle with that. We struggle to forgive when there's been a a real offense against us. And there are real offenses. Forgiveness is not saying, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, it's okay. Forgiveness is that really does matter. That really did hurt. That really was harmful. That really was a great sin against me. But Christ has forgiven my sins. And so I forgive you. Bearing fruit. And there are, of course, many other ways to bear fruit and good works. And and this walking worthy includes increasing, growing in the knowledge of God, getting to know God in His Word and through following His Word. And, and being strengthened in His power according to His glorious might. We depend on Him for all of this. We look to Him. We trust Him to bear this fruit in us, to give us the strength for it. And He, and he gives it not out of His glorious might, but according to His glorious might. 
if a, if, a, if a billionaire were to give a donation out of his wealth, he might give 20 bucks. If a billionaire were to give a donation according to his wealth, it would be millions. Well, the, the glorious might of God is infinite. We have all the power we need. And specifically, it says, for steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness to go through the hardships. Because even after he transfers us, we're not in that full fulfillment of the kingdom yet. We still have darkness all around us. And we're still even fighting the darkness inside of our sin nature. It's just now we're able to. Now Christ is with us, and he's changing things, and he's making a difference, and he's praying the strength of God to have the steadfastness to work through all those challenges and difficulties and hardships of this life, and patience for each other, for fellow believers on this journey with us to be patient with one another, forgiving and kind, and patient with those not yet in the faith that we would Understand they're not, and they need to hear of Christ, and they need to see us setting an example of love, pointing them to Christ. And so trust the Lord for that strength and knowledge and fruitfulness to live worthy by his grace as a faithful subject of Jesus. Thirdly, joyously give thanks. This is one of the four descriptions, but it's the one directly leading into 13 and 14. And so I make it its own application that we should joyously give thanks there in verse 12 to the Father for this glorious transfer. And he says, He qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, to share in all the promises, all the blessings of God's people. How did he do that? Verses 13 and 14. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And he did so by Christ redeeming us by his blood, securing the forgiveness of our sins. As believers, in light, of, in light of this truth, we should be perpetually grateful, constantly, continually thankful. And that thankfulness should motivate us to the bearing of that fruit, to living worthy, following after Christ, and to studying his word. Then following verses 13 and 14, the sentence continues in verses 15 to 20. And Paul moves into this, this exaltation of the Redeemer. Our God and King, Jesus the Redeemer. And, and he just goes into worship in verses 15 to 20. That's another sermon, but read it. And join Paul in that, in that worship of our great God and Redeemer. Finally, if you're, if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Christ, the application is repent of your sin and flee to Jesus. Run to him. He's, he is the redeemer. He's the one and the only one who can forgive your sins, set you free from the domain of darkness, and bring you into his glorious kingdom. And if you, if you have questions about that, you want to talk with someone, you want to pray with someone, we have a prayer room out these doors right after the service. And, and please help yourself to that. Someone would love to, to talk more with you about coming to Christ as your King and your Savior, your Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this glorious truth of this transfer that you make for everyone who puts their faith in Christ. Or to be freed from the slavery to sin and Satan and darkness and death. 
and to be brought into the glorious light of the reign of Christ in his love and mercy and forgiveness and cleansing and holiness and righteousness and purity and beauty and love and on and on we could go. Thank you. I pray for those not yet in Christ that you would draw them. They would run to him for this salvation. And Lord, your people here, fill us with gratitude. Bear fruit in us to your glory. Strengthen us for living worthy of our King. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.